0: Hello and welcome back to Control or Delete. My guest today is Emma Reed Terrell. She read English at Cambridge University and for the following 10 years worked in business sales and marketing when she then returned to her earlier passion for psychology and mental health. That then took her on the path to becoming a psychotherapist and she now runs a busy private practice alongside writing And her first book, Please Yourself, How to Stop People-Pleasing and Transform the Way You Live, is out now and I really recommend it as a recovering people pleaser who often still struggles with lots of people-pleasing things. I absolutely loved talking to her about the book, about the themes in the book, and it will help you get better at being disliked. It will help you speak up, set boundaries, re-establish friendships, re-establish boundaries with family members. It's all about helping you grow instead of staying small, and the book is really practical, really helpful, and it's going to stay on my bookshelf for a very, very long time. I love this conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. I loved your book. I've been telling everyone about it, so I can't wait to talk to you. Congrats.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and for for saying all the lovely things you said about the book. I really appreciate it.
0: You're welcome. I'm a recovering people pleaser. <laughs> so before we get into the book, I was actually reading yeah. your bio the other day and I and I saw that you made a career pivot from working in business and mm. marketing into what you're doing now, what you're passionate about, mm. what you're amazing at. It's quite interesting when people make big decisions like that because there is an element of pleasing yourself isn't there
1: absolutely and i think i went from the kind of the archetypal pleasing others role because i started out in sales and you know i was kind of taught to use my my kind of wiles and my wits to organize other people's reactions and make sales and actually for me in a way that was kind of it focused it so sharply i actually kind of ended up in a situation where at one point i was selling I was selling perfume and it dawned on me that really I was selling a lot of smelly water in a bottle and perhaps this actually wasn't kind of what I wanted to do anymore so that was the point at which I made this kind of the pivot that went via working for a charity sector and then to where I am now so even then, I wouldn't call it a pivot but it was definitely a kind of a focused a focused point for me to make a change.
0: So interesting. You cover work in the book, but pleasing yourself does come from reflection as well. And I feel like in our fast paced world, when do we actually check in with what we truly want? Probably not that mm. often.
1: No, probably not. And because we're sort of inundated, aren't we, with with offers as well. I think sometimes we're, you know, perhaps this is something that, that I notice particularly more with women is around this kind of uh, slight pressure to accept offers as they're made as they're made to us and that am I actually allowed to kind of self select the offers that I say yes to can I be discerning here or do I have to be kind of grateful and and gracious and accept them totally
0: and I feel like people listening will probably know what the term people pleaser means but what's so amazing about your book is you break it down for us this goes so much deeper than any other book that touches on it this is like the book on this (laughs) and you talk about different types of people pleasing and it's so Mm. eye-opening because you need to go beneath the layer sometimes of a label don't you like I knew I was but I didn't know to what extent it was manifesting and happening would you be able to just in a nutshell explain the different types because I think people listening will see themselves
1: yeah of course well this is kind of the whole the origin story of the book really was because I have always recognized that I've got people-pleasing tendencies, and I'm working on those. And and I think I had bought into this idea of a people-pleaser is someone who wants other people to be happy and at their own expense sometimes. So then I was working with a group actually of clients who were not your typical people-pleasers at all. And what was starting to come through is this sense that actually perhaps they were still working with the same pressure to please. They were just handling it differently so on that level we kind of created these different profiles and you're absolutely right there there are four of them and they're kind of the backbone of the book and the first one is the classic that's the one we probably recognize this is the person who's trying to get it all right try and keep everybody happy and make everything perfect you know never forget a birthday always the first one to agree to something and the last one to leave work drinks or whatever it is but they are absolutely out there trying to make people happy and to get a pat on the head for them is like winning the lottery so there's that feeling of kind of oh thank goodness I'm just getting this right but then there are these slightly other versions one of them I've called the shadow that's a version of people pleasing where we end up deflating ourselves to inflate someone else. And quite often this happens when we've grown up around somebody who occupy the limelight already. And so our role becomes to actually almost orbit their energy and and boost their ego or help them achieve their dreams. So this kind of idea of being the perfect wingman or the number one, number two, this idea that they are there to kind of just buff up everyone else's experience of life. Then we got this other version, which we have called the pacifier, or I called it the pacifier in the book. And that, that is a really interesting one because that's not about pleasing at all. That's about not displeasing. So this is the idea of the person who maybe isn't so, so motivated by getting it right, but they do not want to get it wrong. So they tow this line very carefully, trying to keep harmony and keep the peace and make sure nobody's upset with anything. They kind of create this social glue function. And sometimes I refer to this as the person who maybe equates love as the absence of anger. So for them, actually, it was about calm and peace. And then there's this totally different fourth profile, which is the one that I'm really piqued my curiosity at the time when I was writing the book, because this is the one who wouldn't say he was or she was a people pleaser at all. This is the one I've called the resistor. So actually, according to them, they would say they don't care at all. They don't care what people think. And actually, they end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater and not caring at all, let alone enough. So in order to not feel pressured into complying with anyone or following rules, they end up actually throwing out any and all rulebook and can, if you like, coat themselves in a layer of indifference for protection. But actually, they're still doing that as a, a reaction to what they're being asked to do
0: so that wasn't really a nutshell was it <laughs> no that was so good so so good and obviously in the book you go into so much more detail and it's so useful and I won't forget now the differences between them and I think I probably Great. will like look at my friends and be like I yes. think you're a resistor
1: <laughs> it's it's I know and you know the resistor because they'll go no I'm not
0: <laughs> exactly but what I love about the book is there's a there's a a phrase that you use care better not less and I love that Mm. because I always thought it was a bit weird this trend of books that came out not that long ago that was like how to not give a single fuck and I was like I want to not people please but I also I do care and I think caring is a human thing that we shouldn't like delete from our brains Mm -hmm. so would you be able to explain a little bit about that because it felt so relatable
1: Yeah, absolutely. This was, I can actually remember the client that came into my consulting room and said, I am here because I need to learn how to just not care what people think. And obviously, you know, for me, that's kind of catnip. And I'm now thinking, let's have a conversation about what that would actually involve. And, you know, I think that client, he was quite surprised when I started to suggest, maybe this is actually about caring more, but caring in a different way to the way that you care right now. And that, for me, is this difference between I'm not going to care just about you, but I'm going to care about me as well. You know, so I use this idea of it's not saying me first. This isn't antagonistic. You know, the opposite of pleasing yourself is not displeasing everybody. But actually, maybe it's about saying me too, me as well, that I am going to account for how you feel. But I'm also going to account for how I feel and sometimes that's going to have an impact on you and I talk a lot in the book about this idea of 50-50 responsibility and whilst I'm going to be responsible for how I make that impact I'm not going to be responsible for how you receive it. Mm -hmm.
0: And it feels like from reading this book and also taking on more of those tools to be less of a people pleaser you're living in more of an honest way because actually and I think Brené Brown once said this but if you go to a friend's birthday party that you don't want to go to and you end up going in a bad mood and you've lied and said yeah can't wait I'll be there you're kind of being a bit of a bad friend because you're not being honest
1: totally yeah I have a, a a bit of a bugbear with that actually this idea that sometimes we notice you know we probably all know someone who who gives and gives and gives and gives until they can't give any more and then they feel resentful or there's a kind of a a, a kick that follows And actually at that point, sometimes we don't notice until we get the kick that this person had been almost laying down foundations to please us. And when we don't then kind of fulfill our end of the bargain, which we might not even know about, suddenly that's on us. So I'm always really alert to that sense of people who are pleasing for what comes back in return. And a lot of this stuff isn't conscious. A lot of this stuff is because maybe those people... We're never invited to actually say, no, thanks, I don't want to come to the party. So their best way of having any agency at all is to go to the party, but wish they weren't there, which Mm -hmm. sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's almost like this idea of until we can really be accountable and have agency for the choices we make, it's almost like saying, how can I ever say yes if no was never an option?
0: Yeah, because a lot of this feels quite simple in a way but actually probably really hard to do if you're someone entrenched in almost like mm. your identity is being a people pleaser so like how do you then do a u-turn to your friends and family and, and maybe it's not as you know <laughs> quick and easy as that but it was it was interesting when I was thinking about expectations and you were talking mm. about that and how when you suddenly say no or you put up a boundary sometimes people can act really disappointed in you and that can be really hard.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's it's so important that at that point we can be really clear about what we're actually getting back from that person is is not that say we've said no, the answer is not that we should have said yes, but actually maybe what we're hearing from that person is I'm no longer happy that you're not doing it my way anymore. And when yeah. we can hear it for what for what it is, well that doesn't sound like a reason to go back to doing things exactly the way they wanted.
0: Yeah, and I, I always think, imagine if someone kind of said behind your back, oh, they always say yes, ask them. Yeah. And then suddenly that shock of when someone says, actually, no, I can't, it, it, I think it exposes the people that maybe were taking advantage a little bit as well.
1: Totally. You know, and like to that point, Emma, I think that's, that's so important, that bit about when they say they can't, because I would go even further than that and say, don't say you can't, say you won't. Let them hear actually. But even though you can, it doesn't mean you will.
0: See, I am still such a people pleaser, clearly. Because when you said <laughs> <You're> like, "won't," <laughs> it was like the hairs on my neck just stood up. I was like, "Oh my god!" It's like when people say "no" is a complete sentence, or yeah. in an email, you can just say "no, I can't do that." And I just am yeah. not quite there yet. I'm still that person that will give a little paragraph of explanation.
1: Oh. Absolutely, I know. But this is the piece, right? Isn't it? It's like I'm going to be my fifty percent, and then I'm going to do maybe twenty percent of your fifty percent too. And it's coming back to that middle line every time and saying, actually, which is my bit here and which is your bit? Yes.
0: Mm. And the the section in the book that honestly kind of blew my mind from a psychological p- point of view, I didn't even put the pieces together. That's obviously why, you know, you're the expert. But the <sighs> yeah. the people pleasing around our parents and how we don't grow out of it, and or at least we don't notice maybe we're doing it. And I'm in my 30s now and trying to plan a wedding... <laughs> and it's really mm. exposed how much I'm still being this child in many ways that wants everyone to be happy, and I want them to be proud, and I don't want to, to upset the boat, and I think, you know, you've got to put your foot down at some point, point. Yes. and this really, this is really useful.
1: Yeah, but this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, weddings, I mean, I've been there, and I know that one, and I think weddings are, they are such a, a, Hotbed for whatever kind of family dynamics are existing, but maybe have been dormant for decades. But also, you're bringing together two families, and the chances of them having the same codes are kind of slim to none. So, even if you're pleasing one side, it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be getting it right on the other. And I kind of have this thing about marriages with weddings aren't we launching a new family here? Isn't this the beginning of a brand new rule book? And yet, here I am trying to kind of drag these old rules along with me you know and this piece of actually feeling like I talked a bit about in the book actually this idea of being rather than the guest of honor you're the kind of chief party planner or you know far from being the the bride somehow you're the host and what a different role that is
0: yeah and also I don't have kids but I see it with my friends where if you are starting a family like you say you're sort of you're sort of starting your own rule book and yet we still want our parents, the grandparents to approve.
1: Totally. And I see that all the time, you know, this idea of the sort of the intergenerational hot potato that gets passed down because, you know, when you're a kind of a, a real, a real people pleaser, you can probably look up and see a people pleaser within your parents somewhere. And they were probably pleasing their parent at the same time as taking care of you. So somehow this chain of everybody with one eye on another kind of parent just seems to... Extend all the way, I don't know to what point, but I feel like you know, we're using language like pivoting in my career or U turns with your family, and maybe that's the point that this actually isn't about this abrasive rupture, this is just about slowing down and becoming more conscious of what you're doing and seeing if maybe some of that stuff at least is just a habit. And you could do it quite differently without the U-turn feeling very U-turn at all.
0: Yeah, that's such good advice. We sometimes try on new hats, don't we? Especially if you've just read a self-help book. It's like, I'm going to do this now. But actually, like you say, it's small steps and day-to-day to build your solid, solid growth.
1: Absolutely. I especially think that in friendships, actually, because, you know, when you think friendships, they're not your family, so they don't have to exist. This is supposed to be something that's a kind of a voluntary relationship. And when I think about that, there's this idea that actually with your friends, you could genuinely start to renegotiate some of these contracts and say, is there something that we just do habitually that actually doesn't really work for either of us? So when I think about kind of my relationship with my best friend, We really worked out a long time ago now that there are certain things that we love to do together that aren't necessarily particularly socially acceptable for friends who haven't seen each other to get together and do. So we'll quite often go weeks, if not months, without seeing each other, get together and sit on the sofa and watch reality TV and share maybe 12 words. And for us, that feels like heaven and being together. But there was a time when we might have arranged, you know, go for drinks, go for dinner, until we sort of realised, you know what, I do that enough everywhere else. I just want this space to be.
0: I love that. (laughs) Isn't that the definition of being close when you don't have to talk? Someone's just pottering around. Yes,
1: absolutely. And the the kind of the, the sadness of this stuff sometimes is that there's quite often two people already, you know, wanting the same thing but both of them are trying to please the other with their view of what they should be doing. Yeah.
0: And maybe this is a whole different topic that I might have to do a whole different podcast <laughs> with you on. But yep. I, I do find it interesting with friendship that it's hard to negotiate things because there's no rule book on how to do that even. Like in a romantic relationship, you can say, where do we stand or what's yep. going on? With a friend, I feel like, I don't know why, but that makes me feel so awkward.
1: Yes. You're right, because there isn't a framework, you know, so that's one of the things, isn't it? In a romantic relationship, there are, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, rules. And at work, you probably have a contract. But in your friendships, actually, it's all up for grabs. It's all negotiable. And if you're coming at that with a sense of I am not allowed to have needs, I'm not allowed to have feelings, I'm not allowed to ask for what I want, the chances are you won't get it. You know, you're really outsourcing that to someone else and hoping that they're going to mind read and offer you what you want, when really they're probably coming from a kind of fairly narrow repertoire themselves of what they were told is pleasing. Mm-hmm. And you get this crossover that probably is, is so much more restricted than what you could have. So sometimes I'll talk to clients, you know, and this goes for romantic relationships or work or friendships. And I'll say, imagine there's this buffet table between you two. And you both come up to the buffet and you're both standing there. and You're looking at each other and you dare not take the last sausage roll because what's that, you know, what? that's the one that they had their eye on. And actually the other person's kind of just taking all the chicken legs because they've assumed that that's not your thing. And you realize that there probably is plenty for everyone. There probably is this kind of abundance of what we need. But we are at some point going to have to signal the fact that, yeah, I don't actually want sausage rolls. Well, I don't like chicken legs before we can get to that point of going, well, should we just help ourselves and see what happens? Yeah. And if the worst comes to the worst, there might be a kind of, you know, a tussle over a cheese skewer and we can probably cope. We can probably find a way through that. But for fear of that, we end up feeling, you know, we come away from the buffet hungry or feeling resentful.
0: So true. And this umbrella of people pleasing, I feel like it actually is this wider, broader theme, isn't it, of just being Mm -hmm. less exhausted, because it sounds exhausting it is exhausting overthinking everything isn't it
1: yeah this is the kind of the point isn't it when people and they're quite right to say it's really hard to change it is really hard to change it's also really hard to stay the same if what you're doing is exhausting you so there's an opportunity cost here to not changing
0: and with the book with with it coming about and you writing it there's some really brilliant case studies in the book and some (laughs) real life examples Mm. how did it inspire the book your kind of real clients did you change names or is it was it more of a kind of I've always wanted to write about this topic or was there a specific spark
1: the specific spark I mean it really came about with this this sense that actually exactly what it was was a group of clients who seemed to be consistently coming through the door to my therapy room and were not the people pleasers that our society has taught us to recognize and these actually were were the men they were the men that were coming in and following their own code of people pleasing and for some it was very much like the similar code of i have to be nice and i have to keep people happy and i have to try and be everything to everyone you know so there were there were fathers and husbands and and career men coming in saying i'm just trying to keep my head above the water here and keep everybody happy and failing And actually what I was seeing in the failing was anxiety, was depression, but actually was some really self-destructive behavior. So suddenly this view of people pleasing as being kind of niceness, benign, being too kind, being too easygoing, it looked really different. It looked damaging and dangerous and not only for those individuals, but for the individuals around them as well. So I started to see this kind of slightly different type of pleaser come in. And when I was working with them, there weren't necessarily individuals that stood out, but the themes were coming through loud and clear that actually this was a really big problem and one that needed attention and not just to be kind of dismissed with this sort of flippancy of, you know, take more me time.
0: Yes, because I have to admit, and maybe this is you know such a generalization that I don't know where it came from but I did think Mm. people pleasing was a kind of more of a female problem maybe I've been told that a lot that we say sorry too much in emails this is so much deeper than that and so glad you spoke about men in that way
1: you know yeah yeah and of course that bit might look different maybe if we were to make generalizations here and of course you know they're limited but maybe the same problem isn't there of, of saying sorry but maybe there is something else that that stereotypical man has to do to please according to his code, which is really disadvantaging him. And for some of the men that I was working with, it was this absolute, they were forbidden from feeling. And as a result of that, this wasn't conscious, but I could hear that they were trying to think their way through every problem, they were trying to solution every situation in their relationships they were trying to lead with bravado or or a sense of of confidence that was not there and this was absolutely belying that sense of anxiety that they were carrying underneath so it can look different but it felt like it was the same relationship with pressures to please some kind of authority
0: which as we know stems into like huge huge ramifications for mental health amongst men and i feel That's like it. I don't know if we've even started really peeling back the layers on that. It it feels like it's so, we're like the top of the iceberg with some of that, the conversations around that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of this is that sense of, you know, I can remember a client saying to me, you know, I've made such progress. And actually he was talking about how he'd be with a group of friends and they'd be in the pub and they'd be chatting with each other. And he said, we're actually talking about mental health now when we're sitting in the pub. And then he kind of smiled because he realized, actually, we're talking about it, but we're talking about what we think about it. We're certainly not talking about what we feel about it yet. So it's that kind of on the cusp of, are we really gonna start showing up and talking about how we feel? Particularly when it comes to male friendships, you know, we've touched on female friendships maybe, but actually I think that for, for many men, there is a, a level of friendship that they can't reach until they can show up with feelings and that can leave them quite untethered in times of crisis. Totally.
0: And maybe they'll have to watch reality TV and have some wine.
1: <laughs> For sure.
0: <laughs> but I was also thinking about your book in the context of where we are right now. And I don't know when mm. people will be listening to this episode, maybe t- you know this week or in the future, but mm. we're in this time of a weird time where we're kind of about to maybe go back out into the world, back into society. And that is going to look different for a lot of people. And, you know, the people that are booking like the pub night out, and yeah. a lot of people sat at home going, Oh, I don't know if that's me anymore or I'm a bit yeah. wary of that. So yeah. I don't know. Did you, did you have that in mind recently? I don't, it just feels so timely, this book as well.
1: Completely. I've, I've been having conversations with clients recently about this idea that actually, Somehow it feels a bit like over the last year, each one of us put our life on pause, but maybe we haven't noticed yet that everybody else's life has changed in the meantime. So we're almost expecting to be able to unpause and choose what we pick up and don't pick up anymore. That's fine. But we're maybe not recognizing that actually what's available will look very different as well. Maybe all of us are going to come back and realize that everything's different. So I've kind of been having this conversation with people about like intersections of weirdness, which is really not a very psychological term, but that idea that actually whatever has come up for me over the last year, and whatever then has come up for you over the last year, when we come back together and we bring those, the relationship between us will, will be different by default. We are different. And maybe actually some of us, we'll find that out and that might be more surprising than we thought
0: yeah god that's so fascinating that you could meet up with a friend you haven't seen for a year and you are renegotiating what that means or you might be surprised by a decision they made because you weren't in the loop or i mean i even texted someone the other day that i thought great um i'm moving to near where she lives and she was like oh i've just moved and i was yeah. like but i thought i literally thought it was a pause and press play But so much, and that's a really random, small example, but things have changed and people might have moved on in many ways as well.
1: Exactly that. I think that there has been a lot of moving on happening while we might not have noticed. So somehow we're going to have to be open to that. That's not necessarily a bad thing. But I guess, you know, if we think about how this links with people pleasing, a lot of people pleasing behavior, in my opinion, comes from a fear of loss that I don't want to lose this relationship actually I might not even really examine whether or not it's a relationship that's good for me or not I just don't want to lose it and we have that kind of loss that's sort of around us in the ether right now we're gonna come out of lockdown we're gonna re-enter some sort of new normal whatever we're gonna call it there will be loss and it won't necessarily be the loss that we're anticipating I think that'd be really tough Yeah, definitely.
0: And also maybe there's some weird silver linings as well amongst all of this in that I was looking back at a photo of me from a year and a half ago and I sort of looked at the photo and thought I'm kind of glad I'm not her
1: anymore Mm, and I know that sounds really weird. I think that that makes perfect sense to me and I feel the same I feel like there's been almost like a changing rooms moment where actually you can look back a year now and see things in such stark contrast that we can make some of those evaluations and go huh Turns out I don't miss that bit.
0: And I just wanted to lastly just wrap up with a more of a maybe more of a personal question to you, mm. just how you've been recently with kind of um work and life. Because I guess if you mm. have a job, especially like yours, where you're clearly so interested in it, you it's part of your life, you live this, mm. you love this. How do you draw the line, switch off? Mm. Has that changed in the last year?
1: It's changed massively in the last year. So in the first lockdown, this this feeling came up. And I think it came up for lots of us that we really needed and wanted to be part of the movement that was about support and about helping and about being there for each other. And I absolutely stepped into that space and I took on far too much. And it took me until the end of that first lockdown to, Spot that and recognize that actually, do you know what? This is not something that's happening to other people that I can help with. This is happening to other people and me. And I have all of my own feelings and experiences. And I may be slightly kind of uniquely in the therapy job. It's some part of your training is about how to work in areas where you have competence, you know. And quite often, you're taught in your training. Say, for instance, you've gone through a bereavement yourself and a bereavement client approaches you. It might not be ethical to work with that client just then. But here we were in a situation where the material that was coming through the door of my therapy room was totally live in me as well. Mm-hmm. So I had to get really good at boundaries after that first lockdown. And the reality was, I cut my caseload, I started really focusing a lot more on my my kind of my family life and our needs and and now I think the balance is right again but it was really interesting how I was drawn to be a rescuer and how much I had to acknowledge my own experience
0: definitely wow that's so interesting because you know therapists are human beings and I know that apparently so (laughs) you know it's not like yeah you can't be the, this robot through this crisis and yeah it's a really really eye-opening that the, those triggers would be quite real in that time yes. but I feel yeah. like most people have had to cut their workload in general
1: yeah makes sense yeah yeah absolutely
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for allowing me to talk to you. I, yeah, like I said, I read the book super quickly, got so much from it, and I'm really excited for people to read it.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Emma. And remember, you don't have to do it because you can't. You can say no because you won't.
0: (laughs) No, my my shop is closed. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.